market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, like gold, always flying high. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, speaking of which, is the doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, mate? I am good, mate. Um, flying high like gold. Hey, hi, I like it. Great movie too. Have you seen Flying High the movie? No. <laughs> it's a very 80s movie, but very, very funny. All right. We won't get down that particular tangent, but uh, God bless Leslie Nielsen. All right, mate. we got a lot going on. As I've already mentioned, gold is setting new records, but weirdly enough, at the same time as the share market is doing really, really well. And for those who haven't been paying attention, that doesn't happen very often. We will talk about, of course, unfortunately, more COVID, Victoria re-entering lockdown. We'll talk about the economic consequences of that. We'll talk about a bit of the macro, rates on hold and unemployment forecasts out from the RBA. We'll talk about poor old shopping centres, mate, and the struggle they're going through. We'll talk about the new slimmed down Virgin. And of course, if we have time, we'll dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. What do you reckon, mate? Would you get started? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, speaking of which, before we do start, if you have any questions or comments for us our mailbag editions or our general podcasts, please hit us up. So if you haven't yet joined us on the socials, here's how to do it. You can get The Good Doctor. The only place you will find Anirban on social media is on the Twitters at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at Twitter as well, at TMF Scott P. Or the corporate account is at The Motley Fool AU. Hit us up on any of those if you happen to be on the Twitters, and you should be. If you're on Instagram, if food pictures are your thing, I'm at TMF Scott P. And again, The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Or if you're one of the previously cool kids, now everyone's on it, Facebook users, you can hit The Motley Fool account at The Motley Fool Australia or I'm Scott Phillips Money. Doc, you on Instagram yet? Uh, no, I love, I, I, I'm not a fan of those. Are you on TikTok? Tick, tick, TikTok, TikTok. Reddit. What's that? Uh, what's that I actually do use? Oh, okay. See, and they said there was only one for you. Two social networks. I'm liking well, it. Well, look, you know, I'm kind of forced to use WhatsApp. <laughs> Mate, all the cool kids use it. You know that. Oh, I'm using it because other people are forcing me to it, but I, I'd rather <laughs> not. <but. laughs> all right. So please do uh, hit us up. Follow us on the on those accounts. Send us a question or comment. Um, we post stuff occasionally. Doc posts lots of cool investing stuff. I tend to rant about different things from time to time. And hey, who doesn't like a bit of a rant from time to time? And of course, the Motley Fools account has a whole lot of cool stuff, including some offers for some of our services from time to time. So check that out. All right, mate. Let's speaking of getting that out of the way, we talked about gold at the top of the show. This is I don't recall this, and maybe you know, COVID is COVID is one out of the box. This market response is similarly one out of the box. Now, the old theory is that gold is supposed to be the safe haven asset. It's supposed to be what everyone buys when they're worried, whether that's about inflation or economic problems or pretty much anything. Um, those who have a mind to will sell their shares and go to the safety in air quotes. I'm doing a little air quotes with my fingers, the safety of gold and stocks normally fall. In, in the better times when, when stocks are rising high, riding high, everyone wants big returns from shares they sell out their gold because gold gives them nothing, right? Doesn't pay your dividend, doesn't grow, no earnings from it. It literally is just a, a thing, a bit of metal. Um, and everyone goes to stocks. Right now, though, both are happening. We've got record-ish levels in the US. The ASX is up a good 30, 35% from its March lows. This is, in theory, at least, at least financially, a recovery of sorts. And in that circumstance, gold should be down. But it's not. Gold has set a record. It's over $2,000 an ounce. I heard this morning on the radio, some people are predicting $3,000 an ounce in the next 18 months. Now, a 50% return in 18 months, I'd take that if I knew it was guaranteed. 
how is it possible that the market is so unusually positive in both directions at once? So um, um, let me start the show by disagreeing with you. How's that? That's a good one. That's a good one, right? So I'm going to disagree with. Start one. as they mean to go on, they reckon. So go for it. Right, so, so I'm going to disagree with only one part. Now, I'm going to say that market is actually. I mean, you know, it depends on your frame of reference as to where the market is, right? Yeah. Because if I look at, so I'm just, you know, uh, I'm just looking at the U.S. market. I'm just looking at ETF, the uh, S&P 500 ETF. Yep. And if I look at year to date, it started the year at. 325 US dollars. Right. It's right now at 332 US. So the market's barely up. But but that's still an all-time high. I mean it's not it's not you're right it's barely up but it's I mean when people are feeling so good that shares are an all-time high normally that would suggest that the optimism is all the way in and the pessimist asset gold should in theory be selling off. But but I mean you know people have, you know if you've if you've bought bought shares at the beginning of the year you've not made much. Sure. Right. Sure. Um on a one year basis uh you're up maybe what, like... 20%? Yeah. So, you're on a one-year basis, you're up 20%. It's not bad, actually. That's pretty good. Oh, that's what I'm saying. So, what, what, is, um, what is gold doing? I, I, I see... It, I mean, it's not even the performance, right? It's just literally the relative... Relatively speaking, mm-hmm. when shares are, are up-ish at, at all-time highs, near all-time highs, have had a decent run, whatever it is, the higher shares are the lower gold should be. That That's the bit I'm... Even even if you say it's flat this year, right? You still would say, well, it's flat at around the record high. Mm-hmm. Therefore, people are feeling co- positive about it, optimistic, you know, neutral at best mm-hmm. or worst. Gold in that sort of market has traditionally been down. It, it, they tend to run inversely. Yeah, that's a good point. Do I have an answer for that? I actually don't have an answer for that. Um, oh, that's it. Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that, that's, that's Molly podcast for this yeah. week. <laughs> don't have an answer. Gold is up. Stock market. Hey, everything is up. Exactly. Enjoy. Exactly. That's all, there is. That's all you need to know. Yeah. I, I just find it fascinating, mate. So my, my supposition here, I, I'm... i So here's the thing. We don't really care about short-term movements of, of share prices, right? Like, we love them to always go up or conversely, we love them to go down quickly so we can buy a lot and then they can go back up again. Um, but realistically, we don't, we don't tend to let short-term movements rule our perspective, our decision-making, our view on whether we should own stocks or not. We tend to be long-term investors, you know, permanent shareholders where we can be. It, it strikes me though that right now it's the market saying, I mean, it's, it's too, it's a little bit too cute and a little bit too easy to say that everything at the moment is very polarized, right? Politics is polarized. Even the bloody, you know, when COVID gets politicized, you know, things are going wrong. It, it seems to me there's just really two really significant camps, both of whom feel really highly convicted with little in the, in the middle, right? We know that all pricing is, as they say, on the margins. In other words, if I own my house and don't sell it, you own your house and don't sell it, you know, in any given year, most of us don't sell our houses. And so the house prices are set by those who actually are transacting. In other words, the marginal transaction, the one on the very edge sets the price. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's true to some degree. Maybe that's always the case. When the market's up, we're not all trading necessarily. It's just those who are trading that make the price go up. And again, with gold, same thing. It just feels a really bifurcated market. It feels like there's a whole lot of people super optimistic on shares and a whole lot of people super optimistic on gold and, and not much in between. Hmm. Is, that a, is, that a, is, that a viable, is that a viable explanation? Perhaps. I mean, I don't know. Like, you can try harder than that, mate. Come on, help me out. My standard answer today is like, I don't know, maybe it happens. Um, so here's the thing though, right? You would make a good opinion columnist, mate. You got you got to rant. You got, if you're going to be a shock jock, you got to you know put it out there. Mm. Have a view and just just you know go as extreme as you can. Give it a go. 
I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So here's here's the other view, right? I mean, the market did plunge. The share market I'm talking about yeah. did plunge. It recovered pretty quickly, largely because of policy interventions. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe you know, previous we have talked about this before. Previous yeah. memory helps, and <laughs> they, you know, a large number of people probably thought that they. Uh, lost a lot of money by mm, being on mm, the sidelines post two thousand eight. Therefore, you know, some people were willing to jump in, and that sort of caused prices to go back up. Right. Um, put, then there's a realistic things as well. Right? Policy interventions have their impact on mm. how businesses and economies perform. Um, maybe they, maybe the policy intervention in back in two thousand eight was late and. Um, maybe not as well coordinated i mean it eventually did the job but it actually mm. you know caused uh longer term pain now we don't know whether there's going to be longer term pain now or right right you know, in, in this case or not but it seems that people are assuming that you know recovery is going to be relatively quick or well some are right the others are assuming it's not going to be and that's why they're buying gold i mean that's kind of yeah you know i i it's it's just an interesting market. I, what I what I'm worried about a little bit is volatility. Not not worried about it from my perspective, but again, for our listeners who will be somewhat, you know, kind of whipsawed by volatility, feeling great, feeling terrible, feeling great, feeling terrible. You know, if you spend too much time watching the markets, it will send you a little bit crazy. Um, it does strike me, mate, that someone's going to lose out of this trade. You know, the, the, I just took the numbers over the past five years. The S and P's up sixty percent. Gold is up eighty three percent. If you can believe that. But again, they don't normally both work in that same direction. At some point, there's a reckoning when one or the other should, in theory, prevail. You know, there is there's just more downside in the short term or volatility possible. I think right now in either or both asset um, than maybe there has been in the past. Yeah, like I mean, I don't know. Like I mean, um, I find the bogey of the the gold as a safe asset to be, you know, it's. It's the equivalent of people buying bonds, right? Yeah. I mean, people buy bonds because they buy bonds because kind of kind of sounds dumb to me to buy bonds. Like, right. I mean, why would you buy bonds? Right? There's no reason to buy bonds if bonds pay you nothing. Yeah. Um, but people still do. Like, I mean, and and then people buy gold because they think it's a safe asset. I mean, why is it safe? It's not yeah. really safe. Yeah. Like, I mean, what are you going to do? Take your gold in your, uh, <laughs> you know, and the apocalypse. You know, apocalypse comes. You're gonna take the gold in your backpack and then, you know, try <laughs> to trade cave. it for uh, a goat. Yeah. Like I mean, yeah. it doesn't make much sense. So it's one of those things, though. It's it's. I think I honestly, th- I mean, look, all assets can be self-filling prophecies in the short term, right? Because you and I have talked off air about some stocks that soon be going up because they're going up because they're going up. Everyone's jumping on the same train and that pushes them higher. I mean, there is there has just been traditionally, even if we disagree with the logic of the rationale for it. There is some there is some rationale that says in tough times gold tends to go up because everyone thinks it's going to go up. There is it may be the ultimate self fulfilling prophecy, but it has tended to be true, right? I mean, to your point, absolutely. Is there a fundamental reason to buy gold? No, there's no dividends, no growth, no nothing comes from it. Except if you know that it tends to go up when the market falls, and you're that sort of person, I guess I mean there is some money to be made as long as human behavior doesn't change. Yeah, there's. I mean, you know, again, you're betting on human behavior not changing. You're betting on being on the the right train at the right time. I'm not waiting for people to get rational anytime soon, can I tell you? It's been a very long time since the population yeah, like, was rational. Uh, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> which, well, I mean, yeah. So the, the thing is that um, people are irrational about a lot of different things, right? Mm, so yeah. it's not necessarily <laughs> about gold. I mean, my favorite thing about the market yeah. in general is yeah. that there are many ways in which people can win and yeah. you just need to know which way you want to play yeah, and right. which way 
works for you, I guess, and that's the most important thing. There's no one set method that mm-hmm. one needs to follow. Yeah, interesting. It's um, yeah, I think I, yeah. So look, I, I, I just, I'm not a fan of gold either. We've we had some correspondence last week, of course, about it, and thus far our correspondence will be even better than he was last week. So well done. Um, but I yeah, look, I still yes, I said it, the only the only thing I want our listeners to be mindful of is when there's so much certainty in both directions, someone's going to be wrong, and even if. Even if we're right over the over the long term, there's every possibility that short term movements become more exacerbated just because, you know, when everyone's when everyone's thinking one way only, or at least you know, two ways in such extreme ways, um, it just uh, it, for me at least it, it just suggests that there's very probably just based on human behaviour some decent volatility ahead. If maybe it's only on gold, maybe the gold comes down, maybe short stocks go down, but I would just be a little bit mindful that keep investing as we would always say. Just be prepared for volatility. Get emotionally prepared now because this does suggest that someone's going to be wrong in the short term. Uh, long term, I still think we'll be well and truly right. I'm not worried in the slightest about the long-term theses. Just it could be a rough ride. Cool. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Let's move on then. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, poor old Victoria... The outbreak continues this week. We record this again on Thursday morning, as I tell you, just to just a date stamp, a time stamp the recording. Um, they the, the case were coming down. They went from six hundred to four hundred, I think two hundred and something. Ryan, our colleague, was saying, mm-hmm. then back up to seven hundred and thirty odd yesterday. This is a this is a tough old time. It's going through the the premier Daniel Andrews has, has um, basically locked the comp- the state down for six weeks and a more severe lockdown. I'm pretty sure than the last time. Certainly than we had mm. in New South Wales. Um, Almost all businesses now shut. You know, even construction that was allowed to go on in New South Wales and the first lockdown is now over. The only construction allowed is are strategic and essential services and then completing whatever's been started already. Mm-hmm. At some point, I mean, this is this is a really massive economic hit. Now, we should always say that the health concerns always come first. They always will. Um, so again, we, will, we won't skirt over them, but we will go past them because we're not a health or a, or a public policy show. We're, a, uh, we're an investing podcast. So uh, we'll put that very clearly on the, on the table. Um, but then, but then move past it to say that you know this to me feels like the most significant. You call it draconian, that has its own pejorative implications. But a really severe, severe economic shutdown, lockdown, whatever you want to call it. Um, meat shortages potentially will have builders out of work. All transports effectively shut down. Um, I mean, this is massive, mate. This is this is huge. It's going to be six weeks long. Massive impact for Victorians. Massive impact for for the rest of the country. Both, you know, directly because of the economic impact, and frankly, just from a just from a consumer confidence, business confidence perspective, if you're over the border anywhere, you're looking at that going, man, that could be us. Um, this is going to be a tough month and a half for Victorians. I guess the obvious question then is, what does that do for the economy, and what does that do for shares? Yeah, so I think for this is, I mean, it's it's really bad for this for uh, SMEs, really, right? Yeah, so you've been shut down. Yeah, um, and this is the second shutdown. So I mean, that has a huge impact on confidence in mm. the in the sense that you know if you were just if you had a big shutdown and then you had to sort of restart and you know start your operations again, mm. so get to some form of trying to get to some form of normalcy, and again you have been uh, shut down. Right, right. And you know, so you have no certainty of income. You have no certainty of what what will happen to your staff. Um, you know, and then all those flow-on effects of you know loans mm-hmm. and um, you know your own mortgages and you know loans on your business mm-hmm. and cash flow. So I, I think it is a it's a big economic problem. Mm-hmm. It's a big human problem, and this I'm putting the 
putting the sort of the pandemic part aside yeah. in the sense that you know there's a health problem and then there's an associated economic problem so uh, yeah so i mean this is really bad for smes mm. the, you know, what does it mean for like you know it means the usual things i think you know if if some business was on the margins that was likely to survive mm. because they just scraped through the last lockdown this might just be sort of the nail right. in the coffin right. that's going to drive them to the wall. Yeah. Um, there may, there would be other marginal businesses that mm. are probably likely to hit the wall because of this. Um, even businesses that were not marginal, mm. you know, are would move towards well, becoming marginal yeah. because of <laughs> Six this. Six weeks of no revenue, mate. It's, it makes anyone pretty marginal, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a significant thing, which is why I'm saying, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a big problem, it is, yeah. especially at the SME end. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, it has impacts. Then it flows through in in terms of unemployment mm, and things mm. like that. So it's not a it's not a good scenario in any way. I can't sugarcoat it, right? So, I mean, yeah, it's exactly. just, just a tough scenario, really tough. The other thing is, of course, the the Queensland borders now shut to New South Welshmen like you and I. Um, thankfully, I was gonna, I was almost, we almost planned a holiday in October up to Fraser Island. We won't be doing that now. Uh, you never know, the borders might be opened again, but we made alternative arrangements, and maybe that's the point, right? The idea of alternative arrangements, the the impact on the economy. Look, I'm I'm very worried about the individual people involved and individual businesses. I'm also really concerned about the broad confidence impacts. You know, the 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 question of when you're thinking about do I go and spend that extra dollar, or do I say, you know what, I'm not sure how this is going to pan out. I won't go and do it. I mean, we can talk ourselves. In, I mean, this is a recession either way, right? So I'm not suggesting this is any. This is going to be the the determining factor, but it's very easy to talk ourselves into and out of recessions, right? We can we can literally, if we all expect worse times ahead. We're going to stop spending. We'll keep a few more dollars in the back pocket. Businesses won't hire. If we expect things to be better, then we're pretty secure in our jobs. We'll spend the extra buck because we can. And we expect you know next payrolls coming in, and and business is going to hire people and keep spending because the future is brighter. Um, I mean, maybe maybe, maybe things are never going to be brighter than, or at least in hindsight, than at the depth of a recession because there is only one way. It's that that's up from there, but it could be a pretty tough time on the way through. Now takes me nicely to the RBA this week. Tuesday, kept rates on hold. As expected, there was a small number of people who were calling for rates to be cut from 0.25 to 0.1, just to give Victoria a bit of a kick along, that extra bit of whatever was left. You know, if, if, if uh, Philip Lowe raided, raided, the, raided the cupboard and found a couple of, you know, spare ammo shells at the bottom of the cupboard under under a newspaper or something and kind of threw them out the window, that's, that's one option. Um, they also said unemployment would hit 10% and then linger at about 7 for quite a while to come yet. Um, those... Again, not super surprising figures, but there is something stark about seeing them in black and white. Yeah, so I'm going to again take a pot shot at the RBA governor <laughs> because I can. You're a hard because man. He's not listening. I, I think he was. Like, you don't reckon? Huh? You don't reckon he's listening? I don't think he's listening. But if, if, you are, if, if you are he, governor, that's an earbun talking, not me. I'm Scott. I, I'm the good guy. He's the guy having a go at you. Yeah, Just like, I mean, if he was listening, he would have listened to all my prior advice, which was to not <laughs> cut rates when they were not necessary. He cut rates when right. they were not necessary. Then he's basically left with little ammunition, <laughs> which I think is a self-created, inflicted problem. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, you, re- you need to be able to keep the rates at, at, at a point where you have some... Ammunition Something left. Exactly. Yeah, well, if you yeah. have nothing left, you mean, I mean, yeah, what you yeah. can do some bond buying, but that's really it. You can do. Um, so I think, yeah, that that really that ball goes back to him. Um, <laughs> in terms of the unemployment, I was like, you know, here's the thing, right? I was thinking it's going to be ten percent without Victoria going into lockdown. Yeah. Right. Right. And the reason I was saying that is the unemployment numbers that we get cited include people on JobKeeper. Right. Which is really a fuzzy way of looking at the unemployment number because 
there are people who are not working but are on JobKeeper because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a way to it's a bridge, right? right, right. So. If I think the you know if we were honestly counting it, it's probably around nine percent already, mm. and probably going to be eleven percent, um, uh, you know, by the time uh, you know uh, the job keeper is phased out. So that number does not surprise tough, me. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough number, mm. and then if you know if you're eleven twelve percent, it doesn't surprise me. That's going to be at seven percent, eight percent for a while. I mean, Mm-mm. that's what I would expect would happen. Now, if something happens miraculously, um, you know. Here's another contrast, though, right? Mm. We were we were running around five percent. Right? Yeah, yeah. So if you think of the difference, I mean, we're really only three percent higher. Yeah. Now, of course, a three percent is a large number. Right, right, right. But it's only three percent higher yeah. even if you're running at eight percent. Yeah, that's right. right that's right. So like, I mean, eight percent is actually not bad when you think about five percent. Oh, and you take eight percent. If if, if someone explained the situation and said all we'll have is eight percent, yeah, you'd jump at that number. Exactly. So so I mean, you know, I think the, the couple of things, you know, it looks bad when you think mm, well, it's eight percent, but you need to contextualize it that we were running at five percent for like a long time. Yeah. Right? Five and a half percent even. So I mean so I mean, you know, give and take, I think mm. that's what it is. It looks like if it doesn't get worse than that, then it's a win. There's a chance it can get worse than that, right? I mean, again, yeah. we don't know. That's right. That's right. Well, yes, second, third, fourth, fifth lockdowns, uh, you know, things get better and worse depending on how people, again, that confidence thing, right? Even yeah. even absent the facts, how people choose to think about how they spend their money and invest their money, both businesses and consumers, will deter, you know, far more than the actual facts themselves, will determine how this thing plays out. Yeah, like, and I'll just add, like, you know, for example, myself and our family, mm. we're not going out. Like, we're not right, going right, out right. in the sense because, you know, going out is risky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, for various reasons. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you do take away maybe, but you're not really going out because, yeah. you know, and, that, and that's a, a, an example mm. of a form of confidence, right? Yeah. I mean, from you go to a restaurant, maybe somebody has a virus, maybe then you're, right, you right, know, right. they're part of the contact tracing and then, you know, you're, you're, you're isolating for 14 days. That's... Mm. That yeah. adds up, right? Yeah, so there's yeah, all yeah. these things that I think play into people's minds. It's it's all a game of confidence at this point. It's funny you say that too, because it's also the, the subconscious confidence. So you said that we're actually, we as a family haven't actually chosen to stop going out. But as you said that, I'm just thinking about myself, thinking actually, we've actually done less of it anyway. Not then, not then lockdown, of course, more than that. But if I look back to, you know, a couple of months before the lockdown, we would probably eat out maybe once a week. You know, I might go to the local bistro or the pub or you might go to the cafe or whatever and and if I think about now the last four or six weeks here, now we're not in Victoria State, we have got the option, but we are doing it less and not not even super consciously, quite honestly. Like I'm not super worried about it, always mindful, but not super worried. But there is just that sense of kind of, there's something in the back of your mind that you just don't tend to do it as much as you used to. And again, that that's that's super, super important, right, in terms of how much money goes around the economy. Yeah, look, you know, we have not had a restaurant sit-down meal for over three months. There you go. Maybe four months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And and, and, and it's again, like, you know, it's actually, not that yeah. we're not, yeah, that we're yeah. not yeah. doing the takeout, yeah. but it's it's that sort of thing, right? Yeah. And you need a small number of people to do that to have an effect. Mm, mm, mm. It's it's a hell of a thing. Mate, let me, last last bit of macro, and this one I'm going to spring on you because I just I saw, saw a headline, and I, I, have to, I have to tie it in with just the other macro issue. We're now less than 100 days away from the US presidential election. Um, the, reason, the reason I brought it up is that uh, Facebook's removed a, a post from Donald Trump, but Twitter's banned Trump, apparently, according to the Washington Post, until he removes a post containing virus misinformation, according to the headline. I'm literally reading right now. It was posted 11 minutes ago, so that'll that'll date stamp the, the podcast nicely. Um, I don't, we don't need to comment about that necessarily. Um, let's stay well away from politics or, or at least a political view. But that's the other big bogey on the horizon, right? The, the kind of the what next, the the who wins, the what do the policies look like? For an, for an economy, for a for a society that's already kind of rocked, um, 
you know, the, the, the question, not, not even, not even, you know, not even the choice of which one is better, just the simple fact that we don't know who wins, what the policies will be, how things will go, at a time when stability might have otherwise been kind of useful, one less, one less moving part might have been useful for confidence and for, for all those things we've just talked about. 100 days from the election, um, and then a couple of months until the inauguration. In the meantime, a very, very high probability of some sort of court case or two to try and, you know, argue the toss on what happened and why and what's legal and what's not. How How is the market going to deal with the presidential election? Yeah, like, I don't... Yeah, so here, it's an interesting question. I really don't know what the market is going to do um, with the presidential election, largely mm. because, again, I think here's the thing, right? Some of the big companies are big enough that they will just continue doing what they do. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, I think from, at least, you know, here we are talking about the U.S. here. I think a lot, mm. you know, a lot of what the U.S. market or U.S.-based companies do mm-hmm. is independent of who the politician is or who the polit- who the president is. It really, I mean, you know, some policies matter maybe in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, whether there's the tax policy, um, in terms of, you know, where the companies are headquartered and things like that, right? Um, but other than that, I think it has little to no impact. Right. Um, it's really a grassroots level movement in that sense. Like the companies are run by people, people, yeah. you know, and it's run by innovative people, things like that. So, uh, I'm not, you know, it share prices that potentially, right? Like there's, there's, oh, the there's share price the, volatility can be there. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I'm not really, wor- I'm, not, I'm not at all worried about what the businesses will do because the right. businesses really plan with a long-term horizon. Yeah. You know, they're moving ahead, thinking ahead. So, yeah, it, there might be some short-term volatility, you know, based on who wins, is it Democrats, is it Republican, what the tax policy might look like and things like mm-hmm. that. But, um, yeah, that part is not, I, I th- I'm not concerned with that. What I'm re- I would be, if I had to be concerned about something I'd be concerned about is, it's, it's really the economic, is, the, is, is what we talked about here, which is relevant uh, in Australia as well, which is like the sentiment of people, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, right, uh, exactly. you know, are people feeling more confident? If people yeah. are feeling more confident, it happen, uh, happens to help the economy. Uh, if people are feeling less confident, it doesn't help the economy. But yeah, I, I don't think there's, from a business decision point of view mm. or business uh, execution point yeah, of view, right. there's going to be many, any right, material right, right. change. It does potentially impact, though, the futures of some businesses, depending on what policies end up being put into place, right? We we kind of, you know, the the tax policies of, of the Trump administration, the the solar policies of the Obama administration, just as two single ideas. Um, there, there is some, you know, there, there's some there's some question, um, uh, you know, just about you know what what impacts the companies themselves feel. Some are probably completely immune, but even then, um, you know, foreign policies, currencies. I mean, the, the, you know, it's hard to escape in a globalized, interconnected world the impacts of actual policies or perceived policies, decisions, non-decisions. And as you say, even though the stock market is is hyper short term, we can look through that. Um, there, there will be likely some winners and losers, just purely operationally successful, profit-wise, from a change in administration, or even the same administration, right? That's kind of the point. Well, you know, I have a different view on that uh, to what you said. I think, okay. so the best case is for businesses is that, you, so here, I'll abstract. So mm-hmm. company, I'll use an example, like a company like Apple, right? Yep, so I'm shocked. Ca- you're shocked. <laughs> um, consumer-facing, a lot of companies are consumer-facing. Yep. And those com- consumer-facing companies want to do the right thing by the consumers. Yep. Right. They have an image that they need to address, and therefore, <laughs> most most yep. often, more often than not, yep. they will try to do the right thing. Right. Whatever is you know yeah, is, sure, sure. is an average right thing. Sure, right. Sure, sure. Yep. 
So they will not they'll try to be less controversial yep. because they want to win customers, yep. right? And if customers, for example, you know, uh, believe in Black Lives Matter or yeah. whatever it is, they uh-huh. will they will address those comments. They will drive. Which through. arguably that was the reverse of not controversial, right? You can sit out of that completely, and not not offend anybody. Yeah. Or you can put your hand up and say, I mean, we saw people burning Nike shoes when they came out in favour of, of uh, Travis Kaepernick, right? The Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. There's, you can you can take a stand, but it's hard not to be controversial when you do. Yeah, it's, that's true. But I think, you know, that stand also defines those companies, oh, yeah, right? Totally. And I, th- and I think in many ways, I think, um, I think of these companies then have identities, they have identities which, you know, which actually, and I think they make decisions based on their own base. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? And, 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 uh, and I think that that is independent of policy. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. the policy can... Um, can act as an accelerant, yep. but I think the companies still are making these decisions irrespective of politics is what I'm trying to say. So I think yeah, okay, most yeah. of the decisions yeah, these yeah, companies yeah. are making are irrespective of what the policy is. So like for example, a good example might be um, there are, you know, there's might be a policy, there's no, let's say policy, agreed upon policy on say masks, yep. right? Yeah, Yet. There really isn't. There isn't, right? <laughs> but a company like yeah, Apple, yeah, yeah. yeah has mandated even before masks were required in Victoria yep. a company like Apple basically said well you want to come to our stores yep. we want you to wear a mask sure. if you don't have one yep. we're going to give you one yep. right so uh, I think some of these companies are powerful enough big enough that they can make these decisions on their own mm. and and that's okay so yep. I think you know what my point is that politics matters maybe yep. but not that much <laughs> uh, it, it really I think the politics matters a lot to the SME sector yeah. uh, matters less to big business because big businesses basically says, well, you know, stuff it. I'm just going to do my own thing, yeah, which sure. uh, which is going to be driven by uh, my my customer base. That's true. But but environmental policy or tax policy, but even if it doesn't change the operations, can still change the P&L, right? We saw uh, so many companies doing buybacks in the last four years in large part because of a combination of a repatriation holiday from the US administration plus a lower tax rate. I mean, there are... Th- those two decisions, for example, had a meaningful impact on the way companies manage cash, share counts, and frankly, the returns a lot of investors have got have been in no small part driven by buybacks. There's, there are there's still going to be impacts, even if it's not at a company level, at an investor level, at a, at, a, at, a res- at a results level almost, because of some of those changes, if they're made. Yeah, like, yeah. So, like, I mean, the tax one was a big one. I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, before... The tax one is a funny one. The, the 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 effective dollars are sitting there, and it looks like you know, okay, I can't touch that dollar. If I can't touch that dollar, I'm going to just borrow money against that dollar yeah, right. and then use that. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I mean, you know, companies with. So I don't know. Like I mean, yes, there is some impact. As I said, I think the tax. Okay, so let mm. me rephrase that. I think for global businesses, mm. the tax rate is really more about you know where do you keep your headquarters, right? Yeah. But I think where it really matters is if I'm a restaurant chain and I'm, say, local to America, <laughs> right. it really matters no, you because... You can't really move, the, move the corporate headquarters, can you? can't move your corporate... Well, it's not going to help you, right? You can go to, like, Mexico, but that doesn't <laughs> really right. help you, right? So that's where... Right. I think the tax rate there helps because yep. if your tax rate is 40% versus 15%, it has a material difference to the profit. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I think, again, it, it is really impactful at that level, right? I mean, uh, the SME tax tax base is what I really think yep. drives a lot of that um, I- I- you know the income not not just for companies but for you know people yeah. uh, and the people that are employed by those companies because you know you tax these companies less maybe they can hire more because they think they can get gro- more growth all of those yeah. sort of things yeah. right uh, of course then the, com- you know, the government is making less uh, of a, a revenue from the tax base but uh, you know, 
that that's where I think it really I think you know big business is going to just figure out well you know you're going to tax me more I'm going to move my headquarters to yeah, right. I don't know like Amsterdam Ireland yeah 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 right so uh, I think they have the option but you know if I'm a restaurant small restaurant I'm not going to do that I, okay. I don't have the option of doing that so um I'm quite ambivalent about I'm really don't bother about what politics as such yeah. is doing yeah. uh it it bothers again it you know for a big, big business point of view it doesn't matter it it matters yeah. for smaller businesses yeah. but yeah, yeah. yeah. i, I got to say to you man i just a quick thought as we pass as we pass over i i actually care a lot about the policy but for different reasons i think you know for all of the tax rate this the you know pick pick your pick your policy pick your whatever um i'm far more interested in long term policies that actually make the economies stronger better more successful because at the end of the day you can make a couple of cents a share more if the government cuts a tax rate today or make a couple of cents less if they increase the tax rate today. What matters far more to the success of any company on the, pla- on the face of the planet effectively is, is the economy healthier, bigger, better? Is there more money going around and around, around in five years' time than there is today? You know, for all of the, for all the short-term benefits, and you can play a short-term game if you want to. I don't think you do it very successfully, but you can try. I, I'm, I'm all for policies that actually make for a stronger, more robust, better, more resilient, insert adjectives and verbs as you choose, economy in five or 10 years time because if I have a company now I'm going to hold that company shares in 10 years time the best chance for them doing well is of course what they do themselves but the best thing that governments and policymakers could do is actually give them the best possible operating economy to go about their business you know Apple sells more iPhones in a, in a prosperous economy the Tesla sells more cars Berkshire Hathaway sells more carpets you know there are you, you pick your pick your industry yeah the tax rate changes by a couple of percent now matter kind of but the longer term story is far far more about the economic growth and prosperity far more than the individual policy settings that might impact on this quarter or this year. So I'm not going to disagree with that, but I heard you said Berkshire sells carpets. That's not carpets. Is it true? Or it's is it absolutely true, yes. And you have a Berkshire carpet? No, no. But it has a carpet division. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. That's something I learned today. There you go. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, let's get company specific for a second. Uh, a couple of, well, three big bits of news, and we'll kind of go through them relatively quickly because we've spent a bit of time on the macro, which is, frankly, these days, <laughs> what everyone's talking about, there's, it's actually hard to find big corporate news at the moment. Everyone's kind of, you know, being buffeted by, no pun intended, by the by coronavirus, and three companies that have had exactly that in different directions. Let's go into those. The first is Centre Group. It, it owns the Westfield Shopping Centres in Australia and New Zealand. Some big news out this morning. And again, one of those bits of news that you kind of go, turn your head and go, yeah, of course. On the other hand, seeing it in black and white is not is no small thing. Centre Group has said that the value of its shopping centres are now worth 10% less than they were, is it six months ago, I think, from memory? Yeah. Um, look, 10% is not a big number, but it's also a large number. If your entire asset base is now arbitrarily worth 10% less, shareholders really should be paying some degree of attention I'm assuming that this is simply because shopping centers are, are obliged to, there's a bit of arcane accounting, right? They have these cap rates or capitalization rates. They're supposed to take the rent and then multiply that by some factor which represents the cost of capital effectively in interest rates and come up with the value of a property based on the capitalization of its rental, which is not miles away from a discounted cash flow that we might do in investing. That obviously implies either the interest rates change, and we know that hasn't changed, or maybe rent's going to be hard to come by. Well, interest rate has only gone down, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it right. should help. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I mean, yep. they're basically reflecting that, you know, there are companies that are unable to pay rent or unwilling to pay rent. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and that you know there are closures in the malls of of small businesses right and um, there's you know less for traffic and therefore there's you know there's less incentive for people to try to open something in the mall um yeah so i mean it just reflects the economic reality of sort of the of the covid world that we are in right right, now, right, right. right? i mean if you wanted to open a, a, a you know something in the food court i mean your business is not going to be that great right, right. Now, yeah right? so yeah as an example is um, it closures though or is it is it a case of just simply lower volumes even when things get back to normal i mean uh, we saw some numbers that we might have this last week can't remember there was a mckinsey chart out which is a really cool chart which shows that internet penetration in the US for e-commerce went from roughly 5 to a bit above 15% over 10 years to 2019. In the first quarter of this year, and frankly, that's only in March. I've got to imagine it's mm. higher again. But in the first quarter went from 15% or 17% at the end of 2019 to over 33% today. In other words, 10 years worth of online e-commerce penetration in just three months. Now, again, is it surprising? Not overly. Of course, we kind of expect that would be the trend. Those numbers are pretty stark, though. I mean, at some point, even when the food courts reopen and the shops reopen, there can be fewer people going down there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, we've talked about this before, right? I mean, if people's habits, it takes, you know, a few months for people's habits to be formed. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were probably a lot of people who never shopped online yeah. who decided that they had no choice but to shop online and now might have discovered that online shopping is great yeah. and therefore may, may actually decide that their physical shopping goes down, right? I mean, Makes sense. Yeah, and makes complete sense, right? So, and and the longer these lockdowns and things and restrictions remain, mm. the lo- you know, the longer those, you know, uh, there's more opportunity for those habits to be formed and the you know the habits to become permanent in nature. Right, so, right, right. I mean, this is a reflection of that to some extent, or probably to a larger extent. Yeah. And again, not surprising, but again, something to you know, commercial real estate overall, I think is a, is a sector that. You know, deserves some scrutiny if you're an investor. Right, so let's break that down. So commercial real estate, largely in three buckets. There's kind of industrial, which takes into account factories, warehouses, big boxes, right? Um, so that, that might include a Woolworths distribution center or a bunning store or a, a, a large bulky goods kind of shop where you park outside. And there's, you know, f- there's a, sh- a furniture shop and a whatever in, that, in the space. So that's kind, of, that's kind of roughly, I mean, arguably big box might even be retail, but let's, put it, let's leave it with, with commercial for now. There's then the, the, the kind of office space, which is its own little thing. Um, that's reasonably self-explanatory. And then there's retail. If you're looking at those three, mate, how are you feeling about each in turn? Yeah, so the the, the commercial industrial one, which would include even like, you know, uh, which you described as, as, um, as industries, storage, uh, distribution centers. I right. feel like th- that to me seems like the safer bet. Okay. They would also typically be you know, less expensive because in terms of like, you know, buying that land and building yeah, something right. because they they're tend to be out. Yeah, they're further yeah. out, they tend to be where nobody wants to be, right? right? Um, I think the the retail where you're talking about you know, like malls, they tend to be where population is. So they're yeah. on expensive land, True. which might be depreciating or <laughs> reducing in value, <laughs> uh, which means that their malls are uh, depreciating, yep. which is not a good position to be in. So <laughs> I, really, that that's the one I'd, I'd be concerned about. And right. I was actually concerned about you know, commercial um, real estate being office spaces, right? Largely because, I mean, it again, we don't know what this means in terms of work from home and you know how much yeah, you know yeah i do believe like i i'm in the camp that you know clearly work from everybody can't be working from home so that doesn't really work <laughs> right um there's some you know um you know benefit to having people in an office and you know those touch points that you get and things like that yeah. at the same time 
there's also no benefit for people to be traveling for a couple of hours in their day or mm. you know sometimes mm. three hours in a day basically wasting that time which you know you could actually use productively for something so there's yeah. there's i think that work trend of work from home is going to accelerate which means at the very minimum in my mind the the rate of growth of that office space requirement yeah. in you know downtowns and you know city centers and you know commercial like the hubs mm-hmm. that's going to decrease and that's you know again dep- and that all depends on how much is the already existing build and how much is in the pipeline and you know is there an oversupply there and i, I mean that's the, i don't know that sector yeah. but if there's an oversupply there's a problem there i think that's the hard part right if you think about think about so commercial you know office space in any recession vacancies fall and that's when there's no real secular change. That's just purely cyclical, right? I.e., there were ex- there were ten businesses. Now there's only eight, and so there's less space required. And generally speaking, to be fair, while you might lose, you know, twenty percent of businesses, you only lose five percent of the office space because it tends to be the smaller businesses. So the banks don't need less space, and the you know the, the big companies don't need less space. They're not going to go broke. It's a little guy who had you know a corner of a, a corner of a floor who goes broke. You know, fill that. And vacancies do fall. And that actually normally plunges these guys into losses. Generally speaking. This time, though, there's, as you kind of said, I'm, just, I'm kind of repeating, but just putting a different slant on a little bit, you've got the cyclical fall, which will happen anyway, plus potentially a structural, if not fall, at the very, very least headwind. The, the recovery it will likely be slower if it, if it happens, just because for every business that goes out of business, the next one form probably isn't going to have an office. Some of those businesses that survive may downsize anyway. And thirdly, those that do survive and or downsize will probably say, you know what, a portion of those are going to work from home or at least allow their staff to work from home. Maybe a 100-person office only needs space for 50 seats because half are going to work from home most of the time. You know, the whole hot desking idea, while we don't necessarily love it from a COVID perspective post-pandemic when we're a little bit less worried about infection, um, you know, you may not need as many spaces. You could have a 100 a bit like a gym, right? If everyone if, if everyone had a gym membership went at the same time, you couldn't get in the door. But we know that people don't tend to turn up. I mean, office spaces could be like that at some point where you simply don't need that much space for everybody who's employed by your company. I mean, those are meaningful headwinds and the other thing is like retail you know 2% growth can make you a fortune a 2% fall if it's extended can be the difference between making money and actually going out of business you know there, there are such high operating leverage that in, in that business your rent stays the same your square footage stays the same your rates stay the same the power is going to be roughly the same I suppose um, and yet a 2, 3, 4, 5% fall if it's permanent can literally be enough to send some people broke yeah, that's right. I mean, the, a lot of these businesses have pretty heavy debt yeah, secured against right. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, secured against properties and things like that. And if the the mm. property valuation goes down, um, you know, mm. covenants and things might be breached. There's also covenants, you know, on based on operating earnings and things like that that might need renegotiation and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, like I mean again, like I mean somebody who's an expert in this area can find you know there's always that you know mm-hmm. mm, you know you can find a needle in the haystack, but if you know you need to be an expert here, this is this is really a tough area. So prioritize the format in order of least scared or least worried versus most. Put commercial, uh, retail, and industrial in order for me. Which would you least like to be owning? Which would you most like to be owning? Yeah, so I like, I don't own any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not a, not a uh, REIT investor, but if I had to choose, you're putting me a gun on my head and yes. I have to choose, I'd, I'd pick um, industrial as my topic. Again, yep. the price matters. So what, what, what yeah, I'm right. uh, paying. So I'd pick industrial one. I'd pick oh, the next two is going to be hard. I'd actually pick um, re, oh, 
I'll pick actually all commercial office as two. Okay. And I'll pick retail as three. Fascinating. I, I'm going to agree with you broadly. I'm going to cheat a little bit and divide retail up. I think Westfield and Centre Group are fine. I think the, the, the local shopping centre with a Woolies and a Coles and a Big W and a couple of coffee shops are probably okay. I think the, my, my real concern in retail is that mid-tier, the kind of sub-regional level, right? The kind of ones that aren't big enough to be big, huge, you know, draw cards like Westfield and they aren't around the corner like your local, you know, shopping centre, your local marketplace. And so those ones in between that are kind of mid-sized, B-grade malls, they're the ones I think are in the absolute pointy and I would put them dead last. Other than that, I think I'd probably, I'd probably, I'd probably almost call it a tire between the, the retail and, and the office space. Um, they're going to be, there's going to be pain in both though, let's, let's be honest. Yeah, I think so. Mate, let's move on then to Virgin, which is about to take back to the skies, at least metaphorically, because frankly, no one's flying. So they're about to come out of administration in theory, owned by Bain these days, the uh, the PE mob. Um, the bad news this week was they're going to ditch a third of their staff, get rid of the Tiger Air brand altogether. They only bought that a couple of years ago um, and try and come back as a slimmed down version of itself. Not going back to the Virgin Blue days, but there is some sense that they're trying to simplify the business right down and, and come back out as a leaner, meaner. They're saying they might be able at some point to re-employ 2,000 of the 3,000 staff they're laying off. But this is a massive cut, one third of the workforce. And I have to say too, mate, I was a little bit surprised that they're doing it now when JobKeeper still exists. I mean, they, they're, they're getting money from the government by keeping these people employed in theory. Letting them go now says that they don't expect any recovery anytime soon and they think they're a better business without them, despite the incentives from government to keep these people on the books. Yeah, so, so the thing... Yes. Okay. So it's a smart move on their part to, and and I don't want to sound insensitive, but I think you know from a business point of view, I know why they're doing it. Right. It's basically every day you keep employees that you don't need. Yeah. You you are racking up other liabilities, right? So you you, you have liabilities that you got to pay because they were employed, right? So leave and things like that that need to be paid out. Um, you know, somebody might be coming up for long service leave and things like that. Right, right. You have to pay that out. Yeah. So this is basically a recognition, as you say, on their part that, well, our business is going to exist in a much smaller form and therefore we don't need people. We're going to get rid of people, which is what they're doing. I think, well, this is what, you know, private equity, typically this is what they do, right? They, they trim as much as they can to basically make the business as slim and um, you know op- slim as possible remove all the fat everywhere and then make it operational they're also not going to have any international flights right so they basically said there's going to be no right, right. no international flights time. for several years yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is basically Virgin c- competing almost like a discount airline yeah, yeah. Um, which is why I guess they're you know they're going to keep the the flying license for Tiger but not actually you know, but not do anything with it. It does feel a little bit like that. It feels like a little bit of mothball. I mean, they're saying to me cancelling the brand and that kind of stuff, but they're not exactly going the yeah. whole hog, right? This is not something they can't come back from if they don't want to. Yeah. Um, this is a story of kind of, yeah, look, we think this is dead. We think we're going to fire our staff. We figure this is kind of over and done with, but just in case, um, we'll come back and do something if, if if the need or the opportunity arises. Yeah. Is it a bit of a... Is it a, bit of a um, are they trying to have a... Are they being too cute? Are they having a go, you know, a bit of a Bob each way... It's kind of one of those. It, it, it's not exactly a Clayton's announcement because people are genuinely out of work. But it's not. It's not. It's not, it's not a final. We're walking away, changing direction. It's like, well, for now, here's where we're at. Yeah, like you know, like it, would, it actually wouldn't surprise me if they come back and say we're going to, you know, further slim down because they're they're going to be a single uh, aircraft yeah, right. type 
uh, airline ride. I mean, they're going to have, yeah. So, I mean, this is like, I mean, there is no air flying happening, right? Mm. With Victoria lockdown, I mean, where where are the planes flying right now? Nowhere. (laughs) Exactly, right? right? That's the problem. Um, So, there's no flights, really. I mean, what what does an airline do? I mean, they have got all these expensive assets for which they have to pay rent or lease and, you know. Yeah, exactly. uh, Maintenance. So, it's a hard one. I think look, I think it's the right thing to do corporately. I I think um, I always am a little bit skeptical when private equity mobs own these guys because you know that you know I had a really interesting podcast actually. Um, it was a invest like the best podcast, and the guy who was interviewing said he considered private equity. I think it was best like the best. It might have been mustard business actually. Now I think about it. Anyway, um, you know, private equity while, while long term owners buy assets. Uh, and, and buy companies. Private equity kind of just rent them for a while. <laughs> that was a really nice way of, <laughs> without without being too pejorative, a nice way of explaining exactly what that what that you know story is. Um, uh, you know, it's just one of those. Um, you want to you want to trust them. You want to believe they're looking. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to do the right things. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But look, it does seem like Virgin needed some degree of slimming down. Although again, it's one of those situations. Like th- six months, seven months ago. You would say, is Virgin okay? Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's not, not doing great, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> you know, unless there was a massive, you know, big, um, uh, you know, pandemic and <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's, it's you know, it's it's hard to, cli- again, I find it hard to blame anybody for not being ready for this one because it's just a absolutely one out of the box. So we're telling stories and running university courses about it for, for many years, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Mate, last one on the corporate list, um, ResMed. Now, I got to say, this morning I looked at some numbers. Now, ResMed's profit up 35%. Nick Scarlett's profit up fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Two companies both doing some good things. You go great. That's that's fantastic. Nick Scarlett fifty percent profit growth. Shares up seventeen percent. Resmed thirty five percent profit growth. How much do you reckon the shares are up? Five percent. No, they're down four percent. Okay. <laughs> you gotta think. <laughs> Hang on. And again, that's why we always why I always mm. call earnings season expectation season mm. because you know those aren't massively different growth numbers, and yet one apparently. The market pretty disappointed. All measurement managed was thirty five percent. On the other hand, the market stoked that Nick Scully managed to deliver fifty. I don't know. I mean, well, here's well one possibility is Nick Scully's shares probably were um, in the doldrums, and now people are thinking that maybe that it was oversold uh, to use that uh, <laughs> that term. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean. Yeah, their results are not shouldn't be surprising, right? People were buying furniture because people are going to be stuck at home, and uh, people were buying or or governments were buying ventilators and um, the CPAP machines because, well, you know, we had COVID. Yeah, exactly. So the so the so the results um, just are not not surprising. <laughs> I, I mean, what what I think yeah. is very interesting is. Yeah. The shares should be really priced based on what the companies are forecasting for the future, right? Mm-hmm. Surely Nick Scully doesn't is not going to be growing at fifty percent next year. You wouldn't think so. Although, well, the other thing is they did actually fork, maybe not next year. But they forecast a very strong second half, even despite the Victorian lockdown. These guys well, are seeing plenty more business coming through the door, apparently, or the virtual door, maybe. Yeah, my, well, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the very strong second half. Yeah. If if I'm going to have a weak first half. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but this was a strong first half and a strong second half. They're saying that you know, oh, okay. this is going to be a great year. Is what they're saying. They're saying not only will we fifty percent profit growth, but the second half is also looking really strong. Okay, so the indicative numbers are good. At least for now. Again, to your point, I think that's let me let me let me diverge a little bit unless you want to say more about Resmed and, and Nick Scarley, because it's gonna be a really fascinating time to be a stock picker. Now, for us professionally, for our listeners as amateurs, um, you know, normally you can kind of look at the past and, and do some degree of if not extrapolation, at least you know, you've used the word the phrase before and we use it pretty regularly, winners tend to keep winning. And so you kind of think, okay, well, 
if SARS were SARS were proper up in 2016 and 2017, 2018, 2019, you can kind of assume that some, some company's doing something right and 2020 will be pretty good and 23 rounds probably pretty good and you can't exactly extrapolate, but there's you know there's a, there's a decent way to look at that. Then again, if you think about 2019, 2020, 2021, this is a really we're going to get a strange set of numbers really for two full financial years. The financial years was over you know a month and a bit ago, so the first half of 2020 fiscal 2020 was business as usual. Second half was a complete basket case, or at least the impact on it. Some businesses still grew, but you know, the kind of the idea that so much is volatile over that period of time. The first half of 2021 is also going to be messy. Second half, who knows? I mean, by the time we get to January, we could be back open or we could be in stage, you know, four lockdown again. Um, as, a, as a stock picker, you know, it, it makes the it makes the reliance on reported numbers, trends, all those things really difficult. There are businesses that have suffered massively that'll bounce back strongly. There are businesses that have gone through the roof that will frankly come back to the rest of the market. I said a couple of weeks ago, Kogan, I own shares for the record. Um, it's, it starts up 100% year on year in some months, right? I expect next year they'll actually have declines year on year for the same, from the same period of time because you doubled sales in April versus the previous April. Well, fine, because every, everyone's in lockdown. Next April, I hope, God, you know, fingers crossed, we're not still in lockdown. So, you know, sales may well fall because they'll be up, you know, 80% over two years. But there's not, you know, you, there will be more options, more shopping options come next April in theory. There's, you know, it's hard to, it's gonna be very, and there's other businesses that powered on regardless. There are some that, you know, got crushed during the GFC, uh, during, during COVID and will never come back. It's gonna be really, really, well, more difficult than usual to really look at these numbers and try and take any sort of trend, any sort of, you know, numerical, um, you know, expectations from them. There's much, much more qualitative work required, I think, than any time in my investing career. Yeah, I think that's, that's about right. I mean, yeah, projecting the future based on the past is, is anyways always hard and it's going to be harder this time and I agree with that. It's hard to know what to do, hey? Yeah, it's very hard. All right, mate. I reckon, have we got, some, have we got time for a question? Maybe one. We'll one. Only one. One special question. If we only do one, we're going to have to do a mailbag episode on Sunday. You know that, don't you? Yeah, okay. Fine. <laughs> All right. Um, we got a question, mate, from Dave. Dave says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I really enjoyed the short bonus episode about anchoring bias. Now, Dave, let's not get confused here. Our bonus episodes are our Sunday episodes. They're our special surprise mailbag editions that we almost never do except for every Sunday. Uh, the, that one was our Money Hacks episode, which is, I guess it's a bonus as well every Tuesday, but thank you for appreciating it, mate. And hey, if they're all bonuses, then everyone's happy, right? Uh, they're certainly worth more than you paid for them, put it that way. Dave said, It's a very interesting and relatable observation. I've already caught myself thinking about this after Apple announced their four-for-one split. I've read that by doing this, it will reduce Apple's overall weighting on the Dow Jones, but I'm not sure how this may be beneficial. Do you have any thoughts around this? Also, why would some companies not split their shares? By splitting, it does to some degree take care of the anchoring bias that was discussed and makes the shares accessible to everyone, whereas a stock like Berkshire Hathaway at $305,000 would be inaccessible to a lot of investors. He says, not taking into account consideration of fractional shares where this is allowed. Is this the point though? Do some companies want more sophisticated higher end investors, but someone that to be accessible to everyone and point to a point, hope some people see the price as a bargain and therefore inflate the price. That's from Dave. So lots of stuff there, Doc. So let's go through it in some degree of detail. Anchoring bias we talked about. So if you're listening to this and you haven't uh, haven't yet um, got had a listen, have a listen to the anchoring bias uh, episode. Good one just to kind of get your head around it. Then you talk about a fourth one stock split. Now, Apple, as have many companies before and many companies I'm certain in future, basically decided that it didn't want the share price to be so high. So what, what was what's the price now before split? About 400 bucks? Can I just 
Is that a number to make my life easier, Doc? Yeah, it's like 430 or something. I'm going to use 400 because it makes my math so much easier. Mm. Let's say they're 400 bucks a share and you've got 10 shares. What they're going to do is they're going to split them four for one. So, in fact, rather than having 10 $400 shares, you're not going to have 40 $100 shares. So your total exposure is still the same. You've got 4000 bucks worth of shares, but now you've got four times as many, each worth a quarter of the price. If you're thinking that sounds just like a bit of kind of, you know, <laughs> a, bit, a bit of just arbitrary maths, it is. But as Dave says, is that why Apple's doing it? Now, I'm going to get back to the weighting in a second, mate, because the Dow Jones, it does have an impact on the Dow, believe it or not, for arcane reasons, but we'll come back to that. So he says, but, you know, do we have any thoughts about why would some companies not split their shares? Because it does take care of anchoring bias and does make the stock a bit more accessible. So get, let's get your thoughts to Apple if you want, but more broadly, mate, just on, on stock splits. What are the pros and cons as an investor and for the company? Yeah, so in, in terms... So theoretically, a stock split actually doesn't do anything because as you exactly just described, I mean, the company is the company, it's worth something and, you know, you can split it any number of ways you want to. Um, so stock split just is splitting it into increasingly larger number of pieces, right? So it had 100 pieces, now it has got like 400 pieces, for example. Yeah. Um, that's So, okay. Why... In my opinion, there is no real con to actually doing a stock split. Right. Um, uh, I'm, I'm in favor of doing a stock split when um, the stock split is actually helping with um, accessibility. Uh, a good example, I'll use an example mm. other than Apple. So you use um, um, Amazon as an example, right? right. So if Am- Amazon's share prices is, is around 3,000 US dollars right now, and if somebody has a $30,000 portfolio and they, wa- you know, uh, and they want to have a 5% allocation to Amazon, they can't, mm-hmm. right? And so I think the stock split really helps uh, small investors, you know, do the allocations, buy enough, and just create a diversified portfolio if they want to. Otherwise, you, you know, you if you, if you just had, you know, Amazon, you know, you can couldn't buy the. Berkshire A, you can buy Berkshire B, right. and Berkshire B is a you know think of think of that as, as a type of stock split in, yeah, in a way. Okay. It was it was done in, to sort of help small investors get in. So I think yeah, this, as when the stock price becomes too large, hmm. I think splitting it to allow uh, retail participation is useful. So it's you know, I think of it as a, as a retail friendly move. Um, I think it has some effect on anchoring. Yeah, because some people, some people still equate larger share prices to being expensive. Yeah. But I mean, those people should not really be investing, right? Or they should at least right. they should at exactly. least be figuring out yeah. that larger share prices, or smaller yeah. share prices, have nothing to do. You know, you shouldn't buy a one cent stock because the one cent is going to become one hundred dollars, right, exactly. right? And you shouldn't stay away from a thousand dollar stock because right, you right. think it's expensive because the exactly. stock price is not expensive. So, I mean, that that is an investor education problem um, for a company like Apple. That is really in the fringes. Those things do not move the share price of Apple um, because it's like a one point eight trillion dollar company does not move based on those things. It's it's really a retail friendly move, um, in my opinion. So, I think if it's done for the right reason, I'm I'm highly supportive of mm. stock splits um yeah what was the other question well that's so i'm gonna, I'm gonna get my thoughts on splits and i'll ask you about the dow um i take a slightly different more more cynical view to you i think the whole idea of stock splits are ridiculous um 
I, I think anytime a company's thinking about its stock split rather than it's rather than the rest running its business, um, I, I more than happily say to someone, just just leave it alone. Just go and go and run, run the business. Let the stock price take care of itself, up or down. By the way, um, splitting the stock for the hell of it, it's just you know, it, it can only it can only be a tool designed to make the shares more attractive. So you're you're trying to do share price management. Generally speaking, I'm not going to talk about Apple. I don't have a view on Apple specifically. Um, anyone who does it, I mean, even Buffett's done it right. And in that case. Arguably, the only the only rationale I think it's I think it's right actually in Buffett's case. Maybe I'm being kind because it's Warren Buffett, but he actually had businesses that were effectively making money, selling a Berkshire fund that you could buy units in for a cheaper price. And so I guess if you get to a market like I mean, fractional shares as um, as David says has taken care of that right now. People are buying Berkshire at two hundred thousand, one hundred thousand, whatever it was then, and saying to people, "Hey, invest in Berkshire for a hundred dollars each. Oh, yeah, we'll take a cut." Um, so you know, at that point, I think there's a there's some there's some market value created by simply taking some of those middlemen out that are that are trying to you know make a bit of money on on your purchase or sale. Um, but other than that, these, in these days of fractional shares, I think it's I think it's pretty arbitrary. Um, so I, I would generally be against it. I haven't seen a good argument put by anyone in the last ten years as to why their stock split makes more sense than not, or why it's not a bit of a cynical ploy to try to do something. There's consolidations in the same thing, reverse splits. Um, it's all just it's all just window dressing. I'm, I'm just generally speaking not a fan. If you're spending time doing that, how about you go and run your business and try and make some more money for shareholders properly rather than trying to artificially muck around with the share price. The the question though, Matt, the second question was about the Dow and this is actually fascinating. So he said, I read that by doing this, it will reduce Apple's overall weighting on the Dow Jones. But I'm not sure how this may be beneficial. I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't think there's any argument that it's either beneficial or not. It just is what it is. The Dow's a funny index, mate. So we know that the ASX 200 and the S&P 500 use total market capitalization. Now, Apple's market cap doesn't change if it has more shares. It's still a $2 trillion-ish company. It's now just going to have four times as many shares and a quarter of the share price. Probably the Dow Jones is because it's so old, they never used market cap. They actually used the per share price to impact how important a company is to that particular index. So if, you, if your share price literally goes from 400 to 100, even though there's four times as many shares, your weighting on the Dow actually falls by 75%. So it literally will have a lower impact on the movements of the Dow Jones index than it will for the others simply because the actual per share price is different. In fact, if Berkshire was admitted, it would literally make up 99% of the Dow Jones share price movement because if you've got a $300,000 Berkshire price, $100 Apple price, by definition, Berkshire is going to be 3,000 times more important to the movement of that index or that uh, that composite index, a composite average actually, it's industrial average, um, than, than it should do. So there is something a little bizarre about the Dow. Dave, I don't think it's a big deal, but do you have any thoughts on that, Doc, about the Dow Jones? I actually care not one cent <laughs> about what the Dow does. I know people like talking about the Dow. Like... I don't think I have looked at Dow in the last 10 years, what it has done. So I what, like really don't care about the Dow. Do you know what is bizarre? And I have to say, this is kind of funny, right? So the Dow largely actually mirrors the S&P 500 more or less, despite the fact that it's a much, much smaller universe and, and they use a really bizarre and frankly, undefense, indefensible method these days. There's no, there no, there's no, other than the fact it's traditional, there is literally zero rationale for using a share price rather than market cap to try and make it even slightly representative. Um, one thirtieth of each would be one way of doing it. The market caps, the share price itself is crazy. It was done just because it was easy to calculate in the old days, right? You just added up the thirty share prices, and you worked out how that moved. That was a really simple way of doing it because you could get those reported daily. So that made some sense. But um, yeah, weird that it's an anachronism. Also weird that it roughly tracks the S and P five hundred, which maybe says something about sample sizes and about how complex things actually need to be. I don't know. 
Do you have a thought, a thought on that? I have no thought on the DAO. I mean, the DAO, <laughs> they could just basically close the DAO as far as I'm concerned. But. Close the DAO. Hashtag close the DAO. Yeah. Speaking of hashtags, we've got some fun hashtags to come this Sunday when we do our bonus special surprise mailbag edition. In the meantime, we're done. Before we go, don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, say some nice things. And if you do like us, tell your friends because, hey, more fools makes for a happier, more foolish planet. And we all could do with that. You can get a dose of foolishness too by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. You'll get a dividend investor offer and you can access sign up for our mailing list, which will give you some marketing efforts and the occasional email from me. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.